Welcome to the Versopolis podcast. I'm Mitya Drab, and today we are talking about the political potentials of poetry. My guests are Monika Herzeg and Dr. Eric Powell. Monika is a poet, playwright, and editor from Croatia. She's the author of three poetry collections and four drama scripts. She was awarded multiple prizes for her work, among them the poetry debut prize Goran for Young Poets. Being the most awarded young author in recent Croatian history, she is sometimes appropriately called a literary sensation. Her latest drama, Kill Yourself Dad, was awarded the Marin Držić Award for the most important drama script in Croatia. Her works have been translated into more than 15 languages. In them, she explores the topics of poverty, domestic violence, immigration, and class and gender inequalities. Also with us is Dr. Eric Powell, a visiting researcher at the Faculty of Arts at the University of Ljubljana, where he is currently finishing his book project, The Politics of Lyric, A Social History of Shelley's Forms. He is also working on a non-fiction book for a general audience, provisionally titled The Bible of Atheists and Revolutionaries, A History of Shelley's Queen Mab. He completed his PhD from the University of Chicago in 2021, where he was the editor of Chicago Review. His work has been published or is forthcoming in English Literary History, Thinking Verse, Socialist Forum, Chicago Review, and Notre Dame Review. It's a great honor for me to have you guys on. Welcome. So, Monica, I'm curious, on your webpage you write that in your childhood you had no books and paper was only used to light the fire. When and how did you first discover poetry and when did this fascination with poetry start with you? Uh, well, yes, the, this is the funny thing. Uh, I come from a very poor family. We used to live in village near Petrinja. Uh, it was a very remote village, and it still is. My mother still lives there. Uh, and during the war, we went to be uh, refugees for a long time. Also, we lived in poverty, and we, we were moving around Croatia near... Uh, we were in few places uh, during the war. And yeah, we didn't have books because books, well, you can't eat them and you can't put them as clothes on. So um, maybe we are not very aware of that often. I think that's the same thing even for now. Um, books are kind of something that people do when they have money uh, more than they need because this primary things you have to do is you'd have to take care of, of your of course, children, not to be hungry, and you have to make them feel warm and give them clothes. So yeah, I didn't have books, and um, but I had great professors in my schools, and I remember when we came back to Petrinja, that was one of our stops before coming home into our village, uh, that is the nearby town. Uh, we used to live there for a few years few years also and uh, I remember my teacher was a great and she really really loved me and um, well she kind of opened something to me for the first time I think I wrote my first poem when I was 10 it was fourth grade I think and then later when we came uh, and th this professor just to, to make a note when I see her these days she's like oh Monica I still have your drawings at home on my wall so th th that's the kind of connection that's kind of um, very important, I think, for children, especially in these rural areas where there is no education at home. And there really is no 
education there. And we have to be aware of that. But professors and schools make a huge difference if they work the way they should. And later on, when I came to this, um, when we came back to village, where, well, I also had beautiful professors there. Uh, we we had only nine children in our class. It was a little class uh, village school, and all the prof- all the professors were very kind because uh, we had uh, with a few of us and. Uh, a lot of them they had really freedom to do what they want to do with us and so they were really um they saw i was smart i was talented and they made a lot of effort to give me uh, a lot of things that are not in my uh, regular regular education so i went on reading some uh, poetry, I remember uh, taking uh, poetry um, books from my library. I don't know some poets creation that we used to read on uh, on creation language, and that's where my love first became real. And I started writing, and since I did start write the write, my professor was like, "Okay, this will go on the how to say pano the the." Thing where you put your works of your students. We will send this on this um, liter- literary magazine with, for children. We will do uh, some competition for children and so on. So I really felt like um, very, very, I felt like being home in that school. And I still come back there very regularly. Uh, I was a few weeks ago there visiting this uh, competition we have for children in, in literature and in acting. And I was part of jury. So this this school is still for me like a second home. And I really felt like I can do anything. And I really started writing everything. I started writing short stories. I started writing poetry. I started writing anything you can imagine. And I started to read a lot. And I had this beautiful also physics teacher uh, and mathematics physics teacher. And uh, she was bringing me a lot of uh, Stephen Hawking books. I was 13 or 14 and I was reading Stephen Hawking. I was like, oh God, this is physics. And on the other hand, I was reading everything I could read. My school even got to me uh, this, um have to say, you have to have a card for public library. And they gave me card for public library in Petrinja. They bought it for me for a year or two. I don't know. So um, I started to read even from Petrinja, from uh, that library. Uh, I remember when I got my first uh, computer. And even though we were poor, my parents were quite, kind of really supportive, actually, uh, because they realized the needs I have, I suppose. My mother is still like, oh, books, good God, uh, and so on. But I started to write my first novel when I was um, beginning my uh, high school. I mean, it never became a novel, of course, but, you know, it it was like I had my first uh, never published, of course, uh, book of poetry with my own drawings made with 14. And luckily that never got published, but okay. (laughs) So I I think I had actually wonderful uh, people around me that really supported things I wanted to, I, I painted a lot, for example, also. And some one, one, one of my paintings is still in that school in the front of a place where professors are. And it's still there. And uh, the cleaner lady, cleaning lady that, that she's there for, like when I was 
in the school. She's still there. And she's like, Monica, I'm keeping a watch on this uh, picture of yours. It will be always here as long as I'm here. So it's it's really like a second home. And I think that sometimes when you're lucky, a lot of children don't have that luck. Um, but if you're lucky enough, things like this happen to you. And you have these great professors that make you what you are. So this is a really beautiful story. So this is a like an example of how to do public education the right way. Yeah. And I really like the fact that you came back after all these years to be not only so you 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 started from this school, but now you're coming back as a juror, as a part of the jury for literary magazines. It's really nice. So Eric, what are your experiences? When did you get invested in poetry? Do you have a similar story or? Yeah, uh, so uh, thank you, uh, Mitya, and and thanks to Bersepolis for hosting us today. Um, delighted, uh, delighted to be with you. Um, I just wanted quickly to just a, a kind of historical note to uh, to what Monica was saying. I mean, it's really only relatively recently. It's easy to forget this in in history that uh, books became cheap enough that uh, working class people could afford them. Uh, this is uh, um, this really didn't occur until the 19th century, right? And for the vast majority of human history, books have been uh, uh, the aegis of uh, of an educated elite uh, and not available to the people. And there's still uh, there's still uh, a lot of people on the planet for whom books are uh, a luxury that's uh, unaffordable. Um, so we could we could talk more about this uh, uh, perhaps later. Um, uh, I think uh, uh, similar to Monica, I was uh, uh, I was uh, lucky in my uh, in my upbringing. Um, uh, my mother uh, was a public school teacher. Uh, she encouraged me to read, uh, which I I suppose I demonstrated an early. Uh, sort of uh, penchant for uh, for reading, and she really encouraged that. Uh, my grandmother had this uh, wonderful hardbound collection of of, uh, of great books. It's the kind of thing you would probably order out of a out of a uh, I don't know a Sears catalog or something uh, back in the fifties. Um, uh, but there was a bunch of poetry in there, and and uh, I, I, I distinctly remember when I was young, just sort of randomly pulling books of poetry off the off the shelf from this collection and uh sitting by the fireplace and just reading poems and i think for me i was uh there was just this uh immediate kind of fascination uh i was it, it was almost like a puzzle you know like what is this weird language right uh this is language like i've never experienced language before like what is going on here what are they doing you know uh, and I was reading like John Donne and and Keats and and William Blake and uh, and Shelley and um, yeah. So it started with this, I think, this fascination. Uh, and then I had uh, I, I, my public education. I, I I think was not very good, um, but I did have uh, one excellent English teacher in high school uh, who uh, had a um, uh, unsuppressible. Uh, uh, passion for poetry. Um, and this, uh, this came across and she encouraged, so I already had this interest in poetry and, uh, and, uh, and she encouraged this, encouraged this interest. Um, so I, I mean, that's, that's kind of where it, that's kind of where it all started for me. It just started with like almost something, almost something like a, 
like a puzzle to be solved. Uh, this this strangeness of language and and uh, wanting to wanting to understand it, and then through that process of wanting to uh, understand this very very weird phenomenon, uh, coming to appreciate the beauty of it, uh, the power of it, uh, and, and so on. Uh, and my path to uh, my path to sort of uh, studying poetry professionally uh, was circuitous. I mean, uh, uh, my undergraduate degree was in philosophy, um, and uh, when I uh, I spent a year in between my undergraduate degree and uh, my master's degree at the University of Chicago, and uh, I had applied for philosophy PhD programs. I was rejected from every single one of them, but I got into a master's program at the University of Chicago. Uh, and in the year between my undergraduate and the master's degree, I realized all I was reading was poetry. Uh, and so I decided, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to focus my master's degree on, on contemporary American poetry. Uh, and here again, it was a, uh, a kind of puzzle or a fascination uh, in particular with very experimental uh, movement called uh, language poetry uh, that emerged in the U.S. in, in the late 60s, 1970s, um, and was deeply influenced by uh, continental critical theory and philosophy. Uh, and so, again, here I wanted to understand it. So uh, I wrote, I, I focused my master's degree on that, um, uh, I was masochistic enough to return to the University of Chicago for my PhD, uh, and uh, by this point, uh, I changed my my uh, my focus to uh, the Romantic period, which in, in a way is where I where I started because my my first my earliest fascination with poetry was really uh, through reading uh, the Romantics um, in my uh, in my grandmother's house. So. Uh, in a way, I kind of uh, I kind of came home, uh, though um, my uh, my scholarly interest in poetry is broader than uh, the historical field of of British Romanticism in which I specialize. Uh, of course, academia forces you into a very narrow hole, right? Um, uh, though I'd like to think I don't fit fully in in the hole that they want me to be in. Well, did you ever try to so you you were interested in poetry from this academic standpoint but did you ever try to like write your own poems for sure you you probably did right yes i've also I, i've written poetry as well yeah um but it, it, it's ever I, been published uh, or? i think uh well uh there may be a couple of things out there but i'm not going to point anyone in their direction uh they would be they would be what's called juvenilia. We will Google it. Don't um, worry. <laughs> <laughs> we will find it all. <laughs> uh, no, I uh, um, uh, I think it's uh, I would consider myself a, a, a critic and a literary historian, uh, not a poet. Um, anyway, I think poet is a, uh, is a term that has to be bestowed upon you from the outside. You can't uh, uh, you can't just claim it for yourself. Um, <clears throat> Yeah. Um, right. So, okay, so you're both experts in poetry. You like poetry, and poetry in Slovenia still has this status of something that is elitist, that is sometimes um, 
you know, to be a poet in Slovenia is still uh, associated with the likes of Presheran and this high art and so on. And now in recent years, there has been an increase in this so-called Instagram poetry of Rupi Kaur and uh, even accounts that mock her in some way. How do you feel that um, such poetry serves its purpose? So th th does it ultimately do a disservice to poetry as an art? And I, I made air quotes there. Um, well, this, you know, Monica, I what think do you poetry, think? Yeah. yeah, poetry is, um, well, if, if, if we think of poetry as something that's been here for a lot of time, I think that first poetry was really made uh, by praying to God when people were afraid of lightnings and things like that. And really, there is a lot of common things um, between praise uh, and um, poetry that we see today we saw through years through centuries i think that basically poetry tries to make a contact with um something inside and to communicate it with something outside so it's understanding of the world and understanding of ourselves in that context of the world so basically if we communicate poetry like that we can see that movies are sometimes poetry i think moments we we uh, for example i was going for um, groceries today and i saw two pigeons on the on the train on the tree and it was a beautiful moment i took a picture i think photographs are sometimes poetry and you can make poetry out of everything if you listened uh, very carefully to it. So um, the thing that happened, of course, with uh, language evolving is that we started to be more interested in language because language is also a discipline that is very, very uh, good playground, I would say. And poetry loves playing also, I think. And uh, but, but to say that something has to be elitistic, I think that's a very wrong way of seeing poetry. If poetry can be a photo, I think it can be anything. And if we communicate to people that poetry can be understood, and it should be understood in some level, but people can progress in readings. Of course, I didn't start to read Dostoevsky when I was 10. I started to read uh, some literature that was very childish. I, I really loved Harry Potter. I think I would never fall in love with books the way I did if I didn't read Harry Potter. So it was a very important moment in my life. But I also fell in love with Kundera when I was 15, maybe too, 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 too early, but I fell in love with Dostoevsky when I was 14, 15. So, but none of that would happen, none of that would happen if I didn't get to love something and to then to give a chance to something else to evolve we, we don't um, become smart immediately we um, somehow learn by reading and we have to start somewhere i think that i don't know even instagram poetry okay rupi kaur not rupi kaur who cares uh is the same shit i think sorry but again if someone after rupi kaur comes to other book of poetry and he finds something there. I think that Rupi Kaur makes uh, something good in all of this. And uh, I think it would be very interesting to see trends of reading poetry, of buying books of poetry and so on. Uh, did it change? Will it change since poetry became somehow, I don't know, maybe um, more readable to people? Or is there still this thing when you say a poetry, 
and I am communicated with li- communicating with libraries here. People people still uh, are here in Croatia uh, with this distance from poetry. It's like oh no no poetry I cannot understand that you know. And I really have some friends that are uh, in physics or somewhere else who say to me Monica. I really love what you do, but I don't understand a thing. So we have to, you know, be aware also that there are people who don't understand it. But maybe if they started somewhere simple, it's like children, you know, my children, um, when I see them and they their vocabulary growing, it I, I'm aware that it's because of the reading, because the words we read to them, they take it. And when my four-year-old says, mom, this is unbelievable and i'm like you, you can say this is unbelievable you're four i'm like okay things are done well but me ex- expecting from them to know to read and to understand the words that i didn't communicate to them that would be wrong so i think it's the same thing with of course poetry i think that could be a good thing but we have to be careful of course it's not um necessarily well it's not necessarily only good we have to think about bad things that can happen also if we say everything is poetry because there is distant there is difference between uh good and uh very good written poetry that knows how to use language and of course poetry that can be written by everyone but still i paint i don't think i'm a painter so i think everything is okay so even so, Rupikari said, even if she's like a gateway to other poets, she might serve, or her poetry at least, she might serve in a way to demystify poetry or get people like not scared of poetry. Because I have this experience also here, like, ah, poetry, I can't understand this. It's like total, total bollocks to me. I don't get what it means and I don't want to know what it means. But maybe, maybe such approachable poetry actually is good in this way that's a good take eric what's your take on this yeah i love uh i, I love this kind of uh idea of uh um poets like ruby cower as a kind of gateway drug uh to the more serious stuff um uh i haven't uh uh we, what we want right is like uh so we're, you know uh, we want them on, on, uh, we want poetry readers on heroin, right? We want them like, uh, super addicted, right? Uh, so Ruby Cower is like the gateway drug to that. Um, uh, I'm joking of course, but, uh, uh, literalizing the, uh, the metaphor. Um, but I, so I've never read Ruby Cower, so I can't, uh, I can't comment on the poetry, right? Uh, but I do think that there's, there's a problem of elitism in the in the poetry world, right? And it's 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 detrimental to uh, uh, poetry uh, having a wider uh, reading audience, right? Um, and I think I think this this should be countered. You know, I think poets are kind of like uh, you know they have this uh, they have this feeling that if a uh, that if a poet gets really popular, it's got to be bad. You know, um, like if you're a real poet, you're underground, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like a, you know, uh, a, a music scene, you know, like an alternative music scene. If somebody, if somebody blows up, they're going to be accused of selling out. Right. Um, as if, uh, something can't be of very high quality and also popular. Right. So I think this is one sort of like, uh, false ideological mentality that that poets have that that feeds into 
the elitism of of poetry. The other thing I would say about Rupi Kaur is is that uh, I think that uh, part of the part of the backlash probably has to do with uh, a lack of uh, control uh, that uh, the sort of gatekeepers to poetry uh, see in someone getting popular through social media, right? It used to be if you wanted to be a successful and popular poet, you had to go through the gatekeepers, right? You had to get published in Poetry Magazine, Kenyon Review, The New Yorker, something like this. You had to get a book out with one of the big publishers, right? One of the big trade publishers. Uh, that was your path if you wanted to be successful, right? Rupi Kaur blew that up. Um, and so it's a, I see it as a threat, right? Uh, I would also like to, I mean, I, I want to echo Monica's point that, that uh, look, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's pointless to try to police poetry. Uh, it's like, uh, you know, it's like uh, trying to control nature or something. I mean, it's going to grow. It's going to be there. It just is, right? Uh, you couldn't eradicate poetry even if, even if you tried, right? Um, so in a sense, there's, in, in a sense, there's no point in, in, uh, sort of uh, hand wringing over uh, Instagram poetry or or whatever, right? This it's going to happen. Okay, fine. Uh, shouldn't we just be happy that there's uh, there's more poetry in the world? Now, th then, when it comes to the questions of quality, right? I mean, this is what uh, this is what we have literary criticism for, right? Uh, there's too much there's too much poetry out there in the world. Um, you can't read all of it. So what should you read, right? Well, find a critic that you, that whose taste you, uh, who, who you think has good judgment and good taste, you know, uh, Ange Malenko, phenomenal critic. Uh, and I trust her judgment. If she likes a book of poetry, I'm going to read the book of poetry. Patricia Lockwood is phenomenal. Um, uh, Michael Hoffman's a great critic, right? So, so I think we need to distinguish that function from uh, just the sort of wild life of poetry as it as it exists out there in the world, right? Um, uh, and also another another point I would make is that uh, well, the the American critic Randall Jarrell uh, said that even the greatest poets write mostly bad poetry, uh, and I, I I think this is true. Um, and I think it's a very sort of democratic point. It's hard to write good poems, right? He um, uh, says something like, in a, in a lifetime of standing outside in, in rainstorms, uh, if you get struck by lightning uh, five or six times, you're a good poet. Uh, if you get struck by lightning 10 or 12 times, you're a great poet, right? Uh, really great poems are very rare, right? Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with this statement. I mean, a lot of like, I love Walt Whitman, but like, there's a lot of crap, you know, like there's just a lot of bad poetry in Walt Whitman. Uh, the same goes for the same goes for any poet. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would, I would, I would like to stress that too. One final point. I know I'm going on rather long here, but, um, the last point is that I think we should, uh, that we should see, uh, new digital media as as a sort of new opportunity or 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 new constraints for uh the work of the work of poets right um uh, and it can be very productive in this regard like for example i i recently found uh this this poet uh on twitter uh named osiris jones who's writing an epic on twitter uh in what they call anti-heroic couplets 
um, a couplet a day, writing an epic poem uh, on Twitter. I see this as a, a fascinating use of a new digital media platform. I mean, of course, an epic poem is the exact antithesis of Twitter, right? Um, uh, so, I, but so I mean, but what does this melding of of an ancient form like the epic with uh, the constraints, the inbuilt constraints of Twitter, produce? Right. Um, so I think we should also see it as a as an opportunity. Um, yeah, okay. but but we also started, for example, uh, me and my friend. I have a friend that is psychotherapist, and we started to to. This is the first time we did it to make some workshops, um, writing as a process in therapy. And it was a great workshop because we uh, managed, of course, I'm not um, psychotherapist, so I can't do it alone, but working with her and her dealing with therapist ways and my dealing with poetry, how to write something, how to dig into something, how to make something important to someone who hears it and her way of communicating with people with themselves it made really a great uh, workshop and people were crying we were all crying it was like writing poetry for three hours and we all cried like babies and it was wonderful even people who didn't get in touch with themselves for like decades we were like okay something happened and i think poetry has uh, powers and today's world is giving these powers kind of what you said visibility if we can take this visibility we are idiots i think and um i think greater good can be done if we are accepting the fact that uh something that can be um have to say popular is not only bad. For example, I don't like poetry of Szymborska. I, I, I really uh, have to say respect her. And I respect that she said, I only wrote 300 poems because, you know, we have this garbage place and you can put your poems there. You don't have to publish them all. But again, I don't like her poetry. So, but, but a lot of people do, and she's a noble winner. So what am I to judge, you know? And I think that she can be uh, a poet, for example, and I use them, that poetry to communicate more with people who don't understand poetry. And when people read her poetry, they tend to understand more but reading some other metaphorical poetry. And that's a good way. That means something is working. My personal judgment is nothing there. I'm not a critic. I, I'm someone who loves it or someone who doesn't love it. And for example, I, I remember I didn't like Anne Carson years ago. And then I rediscovered her. And I was like, how did this happen? Why? I was like, wow, this is wow. But years ago, I was like, oh God, this is not for me. So we are changing, we are evolving. And that that's the thing uh, we can always have in mind and especially what you said we have to use these things it's a great time i mean twitter why not facebook why not instagram who cares if people read it that that means that someone will read even i don't know other poets but something that is popular at the moment eric you mentioned uh yeah the, you mentioned the gatekeeping how it worked like in the past with the editors and you had to publish in this journal and that journal and how might internet 
change this gatekeeping fact. Okay, so you have a person writing an epic poem on Twitter, but um, ultimately, who is the critic in this case? Who is the judge if this has any intrinsic value or not? Is it like to be liked by critics as much as important as being liked by the audience? Or how do you see these gatekeeping mechanisms being affected by the internet? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think uh, uh, I I think it's hard to uh, fully answer that, right? I mean, to put the, the conversation of, you know, uh, poetry and uh, contemporary media and, um, you know, AI and all of this stuff in context, right? I mean, we're we're in the midst of uh, uh, the greatest revolution in information technology since the printing press, right? Uh, I, and I think we're only beginning to understand and see the ways in which it's going to transform the way we live, uh, transform societies, right? So uh, it's hard to, um, I say this as a kind of, uh, I guess, a kind of um, uh, disclaimer. Uh, but I mean, I, what I would say is that um, uh, there's more. So you have one, one issue, which is that there's far more poetry now, especially because you can uh, self-publish. Um, and because the internet makes it very easy, for example, to start a journal, right? In the past, you had to have a certain amount of money to start a journal and get out a print uh, copy of something, right? Now it's much cheaper. You can start an online journal. Uh, you can uh, do this with uh, relative ease. These are great things. Uh, they're, they're democratizing. It makes the job of criticism very, very difficult, right? Um, because... Uh, uh, you can't read everything, right? Um, so then the question then the question becomes, you know, uh, what do you focus on, right? And this problem becomes even greater for uh, for general readers. Um, you know, uh, what do you read, right? Um, and unfortunately, I think that uh, you know we we kind of uh, here again we sort of uh, default back onto. Uh, the gatekeepers, right? Because you think what you need to read is something that's been published by, say, Penguin and and won some sort of prize or something, right? Uh, that it that it must be good, right? But here, I mean, look at uh, look at history, right? I mean, we have so many examples of of poets who are now recognized as great poets who, in in their time, were completely neglected. Look at William Blake. Uh, look at Emily Dickinson, right? Um, so I, I, there's no, uh, I mean, there's no, there's never any guarantee, right? Um, and uh, it often takes a long time, especially with great poets, uh, because I think they tend to be so far ahead of their time that it takes a long time for criticism to catch up uh, and to recognize uh, what they were doing. I mean, what William Blake was doing was so crazy uh, that, I mean, to his contemporaries, they 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 just thought he was insane, you know, uh, which maybe he was. Um, but, uh, but it took a long time for criticism to say, we need to be reading this stuff 
and looking at you know his uh, his illuminations and, and all of that right um uh in some sense like in some sense I don't think we need to worry about it too much. I mean, I think we need to chill out a little bit, I would say, right? It's like, 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 like treat it like, treat it like music, right? Like I like what I like, you know, and I've got some weird taste in music, um, but I like it and I, I listen to it, right? You know, I also make an effort to like uh, learn about what I consider like very serious music, you know, uh, uh, composers and, and, uh, orchestral music and stuff like this. Okay. And, and, uh, try to educate myself. Uh, but I also, I, I love heavy metal, you know, I love trashy heavy metal from the eighties. Okay, fine. I'm gonna, I'm gonna listen to it. Right. No, no amount of like critics telling me that this stuff sucks and it's trashy, uh, is going to stop me from listening to it. Okay. It should be the same with poetry. If somebody wants to read just Rupi Kaur, great, fine. You know, I, I, I don't care, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. um, uh, you know, and, and then, I mean, a whole nother conversation then related to this would be like what we teach in schools. Right. Uh, and we could get into that. I, I, I won't get into that now, but then, then I think the conversation becomes a little bit more difficult about like, okay, what is the literary canon? What are we teaching and why, you know? Uh, so that's a whole nother, whole nother angle. And then I think the questions become a little bit more, uh, a little bit more, uh, hairy, I guess. Yeah. So I want to switch gears for a little bit. Um, Monica, last time we spoke about Daniel Dragojevic and I was wondering, um, you mentioned that like, he's such a mystical figure in creation poetry. He only publishes one book. He doesn't allow, um, uh, Other editions, allow yeah. new editions and so on. Uh, and it seems that the artist is, uh, is connected to his art with his persona, like, um, inherently, it cannot be separated. What do you think? Like, is, should poetry be inherently connected to the artist or like, should we separate art from the artist? I seen this, uh, this new movie, Tar, um, mm. in cinemas now with Kate Blanchett and it, it asks a similar question, but from another standpoint, I think. Yeah. What is your take on that? What do you think? Well, uh, I have to say that I have some double standards. <laughs> and while I would like to believe that, uh, I don't know, people uh, cannot be great artists if they're not really uh, great persons, I am also aware of the fact that's not true. So, for example, I really like Peter Handke. Uh, I really adore what he wrote, almost everything. And I think he's an amazing writer, but I, I can't really stand behind anything he said and his um, some actions and some uh, statement, uh, statements, and it was all awful. So, yeah, is he problematic in that way? He really is. Uh, but would I not say that um, this novel of his on Mother is one of the greatest little novels, small novels that I have read about mother, mothers and about connections with past and class and so on. Um, no, that, that's one of my favorite and most important books. And um, well, I, and then again, I was talking to my friend the other day and I'm like, but you know, things that really stay, there's so few of them and civilizations are actually very fragile. I mean, we can really, I don't know, disappear in, in decades. Maybe McCarthy uh, 
future is not that far away from us, you know? And um, and what, what happens then? Where is this uh, art? Where is this uh, poetry? Where is all of this? Um, I think that mainly we can only decide for ourselves and I can decide not to work with people uh, who are assholes. And I, I think this no asshole policy is really, really important in this present time. I, I wouldn't say people are not great artists, but I don't think I want to have contact with them. So maybe that's only that personal level you can have. But on the other hand, wouldn't I read something? I really think it is so amazing and not think about who stands behind that. I would, but I would be critical then again on his personality. Um, so I think that maybe sometimes people are just not uh, capable enough to see themselves and then they make mistakes. That's also important thing to say. For example, I, I really love uh, Hughes' poetry. I adore Celia Platt's poetry, but, but I also love Hughes' poetry. It would be really wrong to say I don't love it. I really do. And I don't know what to think about that relationship. I think he was an abuser. I really think that. But again, isn't that poetry, birthday letters? It's one of the most beautiful books of poetry I have ever read. So um it's really hard question, but sometimes I think we can uh, say what I wouldn't do for myself. I wouldn't say uh, in this present time. I think we, we can also agree on one point, and that is this point of today. For example, if I know today someone is a jerk, I would read him, of course, but would I say out loud, he's not a jerk? I wouldn't. I would say this man is a fucking jerk. People should probably read him, but we should all know he's a jerk. I think the, we can make that statement today. We can uh, try to say something is wrong, but not poetry is wrong, for example. Something he does or says is wrong. Uh, when we think about things in the past, some great authors that weren't, weren't really, I don't know, great human beings, well, I can say maybe I really don't like what he has done like human being, but I really, really love what he has done uh, in art. But there's another question I really ask myself often, and that is, uh, since I, I really uh, tend to think a lot about our humanity, and I talk a lot of, uh, I talk a lot with my friends about it. They're mainly artists, and they're beautiful people, all of them. I have this luck. I um, somehow... Uh, find these people I can talk with and they're beautiful people and they make beautiful art, most of them. And um, we we actually really talk about this thing. What would happen if these persons with this great talent were great people? I mean, wouldn't that art even be greater because it, because it could have some other perspectives, some other points of view, some other things that are opening to people when they're not uh, simply in this bubble of being a jerk. And we have to also think about evil and good. These are really uh, stupid things to say evil. There is no evil and there is no good because I, I'm, I'm not a believer for myself. And I think even 
people who are in religion can't fundamentally say that. I think that people are being psychopaths. There is, I don't know how much people, 1% of psychopaths in the world. Most of the people are just hurt. And we don't talk about emotions. We don't talk about uh, handling ourselves in, in connection to our past, our parents, our wounds that never healed or something like that. Of course, we are jerks then because we don't know how to uh, accept uh, ourselves, love that can be given to us. And then, of course, we don't know how to give love either. So I think these are mainly questions of psychotherapy. We should all go to psychotherapy. Uh, and um, I don't know, I think artists can be also people that are hurt a lot. And I think the judgment uh, is a way um, that it's not good. I think... I don't know. I can say really, this is not good what you are doing. This is really awful what he said. This is this. I don't know what it is, but to say some art is bad. Well, I wouldn't go that far because you know I I believe in art, and maybe that art said something about that person that he could never talk about. That's also important thing. For example, Handke could be an idiot, but writing the way he wrote about his mother or some poetry he wrote. I think that he really wanted to co communicate something else to the world. And what happened that he communicated the other thing? Well, that's the, that's the big question for me. What happens when this balance is this way uh, apart from, I don't know what, real thing? I think that he was some, somehow very, very rich person inside of himself. But why didn't he show it? like he showed it through writing, well, maybe we can all think, we should ask ourselves that things because I think that everyone of us can be, um, everyone can become a jerk in some point. <laughs> That's also important. Yeah, we, we have this capacity of being idiots. That's it. If we are hurt, if we are not in contact with ourselves, we can easily go wild, crazy or something. And yeah, we can hurt people we love. We can hurt a lot of people. We can be on the wrong side. Uh, and we have to be careful with that. It can happen to anyone, I think. And, and knowing that is also important. So um we have to talk about it and i think this subject is really important and we we have only these two sides like okay no i don't read him because he's an awful person i don't watch his movies and this other side only art matters and i think this dialogue should be here in between to try to understand how uh can we prevent something like that happening to me to my friends to, to people I really appreciate now uh, as they stand with things I stand with maybe in few years in, in few years they won't so how to I don't know prevent that from happening it's an interesting question so we're coming back to psychotherapy in a way I feel that some artists that's a very good point I feel that some artists um kind of think that their brokenness the thing that the evilness inside them the bad things inside them they want to protect this at all costs they think that this is the source of their beautiful art in a way so when you said that like if you're a good artist and if you become a good person you might become a great artist i think some that some people have a problem with accepting that i i would say and uh, eric you did a you did a phd in shelley 
and in that period we know that like byron was the first literary superstar kind of and he was for sure ridden with scandal incest womanizing and so on uh so what is your take on that separating art from the artist yeah um i think it's a uh it's a very complicated and and difficult question um uh byron and 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 shelley were uh uh canceled so to speak in their own time uh shelley shelley was uh was preemptively canceled uh his first major work of poetry queen map he knew he could not publish because he would have been thrown in jail um so he he printed it uh privately and uh just handed it out uh, to a select group of people, uh, and mostly cut out the title page that, uh, that had his name on it. Right. Uh, when it was, uh, finally actually published by radical, uh, literary pirates, um, in 1821, the publisher was immediately prosecuted and thrown in jail. Right. Uh, Shelley, Shelley and Byron both died in, uh, in Europe because they were, complete pariahs in uh social uh in the sort of uh i think probably rather stuffy uh social milieu uh in which of of uh, uh england at the time right they self-exiled um and uh even their published works were censored uh if you look at the original editions of for example byron's don juan there are whole passages that are censored. They just appear as asterisks, whole lines, passages. Uh, it couldn't be published, right? Uh, only the pirates would would publish these uh, uh, these lines, right? Uh, so they were canceled in their own time. Um, now, I think if uh, if we judged uh, if we judged all artists by their lives, then every single artist would be canceled by some group or other who didn't like what they were doing. Right. Uh, and I think this is a, a, an important uh, thing to keep in mind when we're talking about this is that, um, I mean, now, of, of course, the so-called cancel culture uh, is seen as a phenomenon of the, the radical left, at least in the U.S., right? Uh, but historically, those doing the canceling have been those in power and have been right wing. Okay, uh, that's why Shelley and Byron uh, couldn't publish their work, uh, and it's historically been the left that's fought against this, uh, and for uh, the freedom of the press and freedom of ex of expression. Right. This is why the uh, um, uh, NAACP has what many would consider a kind of absolutist uh, stance on. Uh, the free press and freedom of expression, right? It's through years of struggle uh, that they've come to such a position, right? Um, now, uh, I think that I think that there's a kind of there's a talking past one another that's happening right now. And the left has a completely different language about all of this than uh, uh, the liberal mainstream, and certainly than the right. Okay. The left talks about it in terms of deplatforming, right? This is, and they see this as completely different than uh, uh, 
traditional discussions about free speech and free expression, right? They're asking who has a platform to speak and why, you know? And I think this is an important question to ask, right? I do. Um, uh, but um, uh, I'm not... Uh, I'm not certain, but I'm also concerned, right? Because uh, once we start sort of uh, moving into the realm of of censorship, whether we call it deplatforming or whatever, uh, that kind of opens the game. Look, look what's happening right now in Florida, uh, where they're just blatantly censoring the curriculum uh, and cutting out uh, uh, African American studies, important major works in the history of African-American studies and critical race theory, um, this is just blatant censorship, right? Uh, so I, th I think it's quite a difficult question, right? Um, if you take Ezra Pound, for example, uh, Ezra Pound was a fascist. There's no doubt about it. Okay? Yeah, Ezra Pound is a great, yeah. Um, yet, we, you cannot read and understand the history of modernism without Ezra Pound, right? So uh, if we tried to eliminate Ezra Pound from the curriculum or, or cancel him or, or whatever because he was a fascist, uh, then our understanding of modernism would suffer profoundly, right? Now, I think it's much better to, to, to teach Ezra Pound. Uh, and also, look, I think that the Cantos has some of the most incredible poetry uh, that's ever been written by uh, an American poet in it. Um, it's I can't deny the power of the of the work, and yet I recognize he was a fascist. Okay, uh, so I think it's much better to just have an uh, teach it and talk about it. Right? Why was Ezra Pound a fascist? How does the fascism come into his work? Right? Um, to me, that that needs to be uh, that needs to be the response. Right? Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, like I said, I think it's a, I, I think it's a very, well, well, to take another example, just to kind of look at another nuance of this, right? Roman Polanski should be in jail. He should not be allowed to make films anymore because he should be in jail. All right. Now, uh, um, uh, he's he's unfortunately escaped that, and that's one of the big problems. I mean, this is this is part of the impetus, I think, behind uh, Me Too, is that the justice system is not working. It has not worked for women, uh, for minorities, for a long time, right? So there there has to be other means of of bringing about justice if the justice system's not doing it, right? Um, so that's a that's a whole nother whole nother aspect of the, uh, of this that I that I think is you know I mean we could we could have a whole podcast talking about just that right um, but it's an aspect that needs to be recognized right one final point um, uh, <clears throat> there is a kind of I, I I mean I think there's a distinction that needs to be made here between uh, questions of of the law what's legal what is legally protected speech and what's hate speech. Right. Uh, and etiquette. Right. Um, like some if, if if I'm if I'm at a party and somebody says something uh, stupid and bigoted, I'm going to call them an asshole and walk away and not talk to them anymore. Right. That's etiquette. Right. I can't prosecute them. Probably, <laughs> you know, I can't have them thrown in jail. They probably shouldn't be thrown in jail. 
right? But they're an asshole and I'm not going to talk to them, right? And I'm going to tell them that they're an asshole, you know? Uh, uh, so that distinction, I think it's, is somehow getting a little bit lost in this. We need to make a distinction between like, uh, like etiquette and, and, uh, and, uh, speech that's legally, legally protected, uh, and hate speech. Right. Um, uh, and then, you know, I mean, I would say that, you know, I, I'm also concerned about what I see as a kind of politics of consumption, uh, in cancel culture, as if you can just sort of decide to change the channel if there's something you don't like, right? Um, uh, which to me is sort of akin to, you know, oh, I'm going to shop at Whole Foods and then I'm being a good person, right? Uh, to me, this is a substitute for politics instead of politics, right? Um, where politics should instead be trying to get at the root issues uh, behind, um, uh, behind these things, right? Um, why are these people assholes, right? Uh, why, why does there have to be a Me Too movement in the first place, right? Because there's structural institutional uh, misogyny and sexism. That's what needs to be addressed, right? Not uh, uh, deciding, oh, I'm never going to watch a film that has Kevin Spacey in it anymore, or I'm never going to watch Louis C.K.'s comedy anymore, right? Uh, it's the structural issues that need need to be addressed, and also as 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 Monica was saying, I mean, I uh, getting behind the issues that the psychological issues uh, that are making people assholes, uh, and and uh, you know that also too is a, I, I think I, I think very important. It, that's a great point with Ezra Pound. So like. He was a fascist, but we cannot we cannot we cannot simply ignore his work. So let's face it and discuss it. Let's not just change the channel by ignoring it. That's a great point, Eric. Um, so you talked about class a little bit, and Monica, you know that your poetry as well as drama texts are particularly socially aware. In one of your dramas, uh, "Where to Buy Tenderness" from two thousand and twenty-one, uh, you have three generation of women who still feel the scars of wars. And, um, well, do you feel that poetry should always give a voice to the marginalized, the downtrodden? And furthermore, are are all good poems already political? Or I know we talked about emotion and love and uh, self-discovery, but how do you see how do you see politics entering poetry? And should it be at the service of poetry, or uh, should it be included in it in every good work of art? What do you think about that? Well, uh, one of my favorite poets is Transtromer, uh, and I really adore his poetry. And he's an, he's uh, an example of not political poetry, I think. And he's so wonderful, and he's so uh, beautifully uh, catching the moment, catching the the nature, catching everything that matters inside of us. We think outside of us and uh i think it would be quite sinful to say poetry or art even should be political i think art is always political but not in a political way i think it's an act of something a statement that you make you make a statement of tenderness it's 
I think everything that is making a statement is a political act. You know, it's acting on something. And that means um, that either you try to accept something, either you try to change something, either you try to communicate something. All of these things matter in art. Uh, but saying that one way of making a statement is more important than another, I think it's one of the most, um, how to say, wrong things said ever, because R doesn't make, um, how to say, doesn't make that kind of um, impression, even on artists, because I cannot write politically or... Um, dealing with some subjects if I don't feel like doing it. So I think that for every one of us, there is this way uh, of writing that we feel we need to write. And um, I, I adore a lot of poets and writers that don't write about zeitgeist, that don't write about things that are maybe hotspots today. For example, this moment you, you said, me too, and actually... Uh, violence on women and so on i write a lot about violence on women because i feel it i i somehow because i had history of violence in my family i feel it personal so i think that when i write about it somehow i'm dealing something um that is important to myself and that, that's the only criterion that should be here because if we if we are writing because something is important to be written at the time that then mainly it's a bad art, I think. And but when you write because you have real need to write about something, even though it, it can be walk, what well, Walser did the walk book, you know, it's it's it can be anything and it can be equally good if it's not dealing with well, we can say it is um Every subject we write about, if we write a good literature, it's a, it's important subject. So for someone writing about walking or running would be more important personally than writing about violence. And that is also important. So you, you see, it's always communicating some something to someone. Uh, so I am really, when I, I, I was thinking about things I wrote, and yeah, mainly they are. The, the old subjects that I'm dealing with for this time now, because I feel it, are uh, dealing with political um, things that are happening. Maybe not political in a way, I, I'm a feminist, I'm a very loud feminist, but uh, I, I write about women because I feel them more than I feel men. Uh, but that, that doesn't mean I don't try to understand men. For example, I... I really, really edited one great book uh, from Aramburu, uh, Les, Vensoja, Les, Les Vensejos, I think its name, um, about a man who's dealing with crisis in the 50s and he wants to kill himself and you go um, with him through one year of his life. And it's a wonderful book, really wonderful book. So I don't think that art should um, do anything but from what it wants. Sometimes I really like to to write love poetry, and it really it makes me happy. I don't know. I really like love, um, and I don't think that really matters less than anything I write about violence and uh, femicide and things like that. Um, and I really like a lot of people who didn't write about, uh, how to say, 
political and and I don't know feminist subjects. So art knows its ways, and if we are smart enough, I think that feeling what we need to write about is one of the greatest things artists can learn, because uh, doing something on force is. Uh, most of the time wrong. Um, I had this issue and I was dealing with it for years now. Uh, it's about how do we write and what do we listen to? So th there is this thing, of course, you don't write a poem and then leave it to be. You have to work on it. And most of the poems is just work since you get you have a call and then you work on it, of course. Uh, there's this, there are these people who think, no, poetry is whatever comes out this way. And I think that's the difference between poets that really think about poetry as a playing playground of words, when every, where every word, word matters, and the other poetry, I don't know, write it for yourself, be a therapist to yourself, who cares? Um, but this thing is important because when you think about writing, you ask yourself, why do you write? You write because you have a need to write. And that need, um, you need to address it the right way. And then you have to work on it. Again, it's not like, I don't know, we want to write feminist subjects. I know a lot of books about uh, this kind of uh, issues that are not good because someone wanted to write something and we had a lot of uh, theater uh, plays that were dealing with that kind of subjects and you're like god this is awful why do you want to do something like that well i think it's popular at this time and people want to do it so and that's the wrong way of course so i think art really should be felt and when it's felt i don't know i think there's no wrong way whatever you feel to write about i i'm the unlucky or lucky one i don't know what to think i really write um about things i i feel really strong for and i do feel strong for this uh, class uh, problems in our society uh, but that's because my family had issues for decades with it. And my mother, my, my father was an alcoholic and my grandfather was beating my grandmother very heavily. So that's something I was dealing with uh, through my, and, and for years I was in violent relationships until I got to figure out my head. So it's like, you don't deal with something you don't feel. That's mainly the thing I was trying to say. Yeah. That's really beautiful. I really liked how you said that every statement already is a political act. So this is, I think, a very, a very good point. And even every verse could be a political act in this way. And in a way, yeah, you can write a poem about running, walking, clouds or politics. In a way, by writing, you are just giving a testament of what it means to be alive. You're giving, you're, you're being, you're giving a testament to what it means to be you, to be human. And I feel that, yeah, it, it can go either way. And Eric, in your concluding remarks from your PhD thesis, you, you wrote that this work began, quote, this is a quote, this work began with a very general problem and a want to attempt to understand how poetry can change the world rather than just interpreting it. And then if I may play the devil's advocate here, I, I like to quote my favorite uh, Zizek again, where someone, he says that, this potential, the political potential of poetry can also be usurped for the opposite. And he somewhere stated that the, there is no genocide without poetry and all 
you know, in the Balkan Wars, we had Radovan Karadzic, who was a poet also, but like a terrible, terrible politician. And I would say that there is indeed, Monica, before you said there is no good and evil in the world. I don't know if you meant it this way, but there is there is absolute evil in the world and we need to fight, fight it. And how can poetry be uh, taken? How can it be protected to be usurped by this evil? Eric, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's a uh, it's a great question, uh, and it's an ancient question, right? Um, I mean, Zizek is in a long philosophical tradition going back to Plato and being uh, skeptical of poets, right? Uh, uh, famously, the poets were were banished from uh, from the polis in Plato's Republic uh, because they're dangerous, right? Uh, because they uh, use rhetoric to manipulate emotions, right? Um, yeah, uh, look, the uh, the semioticians of uh, advertising uh, probably use all of the same tools uh, that poetry uses uh, uh, to sell us crap that we don't need um, uh, and uh, get further in debt on our, on our credit cards. Um, and yes, uh, metaphor, simile, uh, rhyme, the musicality of poetry. Uh, these are all tools of rhetoric that can be used by demagogues uh, to make people feel emotional about uh, a regressive uh, reactionary politics. Um, yeah, I mean, Zizek is, is also uh, basically um, uh, saying what, what uh, Adorno and, and Horkheimer already said in the, the dialectic of enlightenment, that there's no document of civilization that's not also a document of barbarism. Um, and, and of course, Adorno famously said that that uh, to write lyric poetry after Auschwitz is is barbarism, right? Uh, but yes, this is the this is the dialectic of culture, right? Uh, uh, you have uh, you have the great art of Beethoven uh, that's then appropriated and used by the Nazis, right? Um, uh, so of course, uh, poetry uh, poetry is a um, uh, maybe in a basic sense, uh, a relationship in a way of using language, right? Uh, and it has a set of forms and techniques and uh, things that have uh, developed over over centuries. Uh, and they can be just like uh, just like any other tools. They can be used for good, or they can uh, they can be used for for evil. Now, having said that. I would want to counter it to say uh, that I think uh, the majority of uh, the majority of great poets in history, their work has been uh, a force of not to make it too well. I don't know if I want to use the, the terms good and evil. You know, uh, it, it's been a, a sort of uh, uh, progressive uh, force, also a, a dangerous term. Uh, a force for uh, uh, liberation, maybe is is the way I'd want to put it, right? Um, yeah, I mean, so it, to, my dissertation, I mean, I I um, I wanted to, I I thought that uh, uh, Shelley was a, a particularly interesting historical case to really look at the politics of poetry. Uh, because very rarely have you had a poet whose work 
had such a political impact, right? Um, and to study how that happened, why it happened, um, and through that to try to come to some understanding of of the political power that that, that poetry has, right? Um, and I, I mean, there's a there's a lot to say here, right? Uh, I think we. Uh, I think we need to distinguish uh, different kinds of different kinds of politics. Um, uh, I think there's a danger of uh, arriving at at what Hegel called the night in which all cows are black. If everything's political, nothing is. Um, uh, and uh, so here I would so I'll just introduce a term that a distinction that Shelley makes. And Shelley makes a distinction between what he calls esoteric and exoteric works. Okay. Works, the esoteric works are uh, works that he thought would only be comprehensible to a minority of readers. Um, now these, these are, for example, Prometheus Unbound, which is generally considered Shelley's great masterpiece. And that poem is uh, perhaps the greatest statement of Shelley's philosophy, Shelley's politics, uh, all of it. But he didn't think it would ever have a wide readership. Okay, he nonetheless wrote works that he called exoteric that were designed for an immediate mass readership uh, at the first moment in in history when that was even possible. Uh, poems like the Mask of Anarchy, uh, which he wrote after. Uh, after the Peterloo massacre in 1819, when you had uh, a mass demonstration of, of the working class uh, uh, for reform of parliament um, and the yeoman cavalry uh, charged on the crowd indiscriminately uh, slashing and cutting through the crowd with their sabers, killed a bunch of people, including women, children. Uh, the news reached Shelley, who was in exile in Italy, uh, and he was... Uh, of course, fuming at this. I mean, he was uh, uh, irate, uh, and he felt he had to respond, and he responded the way that he did, uh, which is through writing a through writing a poem uh, intended to be immediately published. Uh, and this is his famous poem, "The Mask of Anarchy," which is uh, considered one of the great political poems in the English language, uh, and it has a famous refrain. Uh, Rise like lions after slumber in unvanquishable number. Shake your chains to earth like dew, which in sleep had fallen on you. Ye are many, they are few. Uh, this is propaganda, right? This is a slogan. Ye are many, they are few. Jeremy Corbyn used this uh, in his recent campaign, for the many, not the few. This comes straight from Shelley, right? That, that, uh, that refrain has been recited by uh, striking union workers all over the world uh, for years and years and years. Okay, it's had an incredible political impact. Uh, Gandhi uh, quoted the mask of anarchy, right? Um, but it's a slogan, right? It's a political, it's a political slogan, but it's a slogan that has immense power. Um, and what I and the other thing here I would say though too is that if you actually read the entirety of the Mask of Anarchy, it's an incredibly difficult and challenging poem. Even though he said it was an exoteric work meant for mass readership, he couldn't write a poem that wasn't incredibly complicated and difficult. Uh, it has this weird framing in a dream 
it combines multiple different traditional forms, the ballad, uh, um, uh, uh, song, uh, contemporary radical song, uh, um, figural interpretation, the Renaissance mask, which was a form, which is a strange form to use uh, because the Renaissance mask was, was all about the sovereignty of the monarch. Um, so it's an incredibly difficult work, right? So even when he was, even when he was writing for a mass audience, he couldn't sort of turn off uh, his poetic intelligence, right? So I think that's maybe one lesson here, right? Is that uh, um, a great poet is gonna write, uh, they can't turn off their poetic intelligence, even if they choose to write a poem for a mass audience that is about, is, is contains a political slogan or political slogans, right? Um, uh, but the other thing I would say, right, is that um, poetry had a mass readership for a very brief period uh, in England in the early 19th century, early to mid 19th century, in a way that I don't think it's had since, right? Uh, and this means that if we're talking about, uh, if we're talking about any sort of immediate direct action, revolutionary politics, Poetry uh, is not really, I mean, yes, poetry should be a tool in that arsenal, but it's not, it's not going to affect that, right? Um, in other words, I would say that poetry is, is uh, limited to a slower, uh, more glacial kind of politics, which is being read over time by people and influencing them and how they think about the world uh, and so on. Right. I would say that right now we're in such a crisis uh, that uh, if people are not putting their bodies in front of the police, putting their bodies in direct conflict with the police, you're not engaged in in revolutionary politics. Uh, and that that it's also, I think, a matter of political diligence. To point out. uh politics that are inadequate to the moment, right? Uh, uh, if, you're, uh, if you're at home writing uh, politically uh, conscious poetry, thinking that you're doing your part, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I, I, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not adequate. Uh, if you're shopping at Whole Foods and recycling, thinking you're doing your part, I'm sorry, it's not adequate, okay? And here, I, I, I'd like to just read a poem by uh, by Sean Bonney, uh, the late Sean Bonney, who uh, I think is one of the great political poets of our time. Uh, and this is from his book, uh, Letters Against the Firmament. Um, uh, and uh, uh, the language in this poem is uh, not very nice. It's kind of explicit. So uh, just, uh, just a, a warning. For I love you, say fuck the police. For the fires of heaven, say fuck the police. Don't say recruitment. Don't say Trotsky, say fuck the police. For alarm clock, say fuck the police. For my morning commute, for electoral system, for endless solar wind, say fuck the police. Don't say I've lost understanding of my visions. Don't say that that much maligned human faculty. Don't say suicided by society, say fuck the police. For the movement of the heavenly spheres, say fuck the police. For the moon's bright globe, for the fairy mab, say fuck the police. 
Don't say direct debit. Don't say join the party. Say you are sleeping for the boss and then say fuck the police. Don't say evening rush hour. Say fuck the police. Don't say here are the steps I've taken to find work. Say fuck the police. Don't say tall skinny latte. Say fuck the police. For the Earth's gravitational pull, say fuck the police. For make it new, say fuck the police. Don't say spare change, say fuck the police. Don't say happy new year, say fuck the police. Perhaps say rewrite the calendar, but after that, immediately after that, say fuck the police. For philosopher's stone, for royal wedding, for the work of transmutation, for love of beauty, say fuck the police. Say no justice, no peace, and then say fuck the police. Uh, I don't do justice to that. You should uh, you should listen to uh, Sean Bonney reading it himself uh, on YouTube. Um, uh, but I I I, I think do. the poem is 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 kind of uh, is making the point better than I than than I could have make it could have made it. That's awesome. Thanks. I mean, uh, this is like I don't know how how better to end this uh, political poetry podcast than by this poem. <laughs> so. I would like to thank you, both of you. I feel really privileged to have had this talk with you, to have met you. I really hope, Eric, I met you in person. I really hope, Monica, that uh, we meet in person and uh, you come to Ljubljana or me to Zagreb. And this was an incredible talk. Thank you again for this, uh, for taking the time. And um, well, this was Monica Herzeg and Dr. Eric Powell on the political potentials of poetry. Have a great day, everyone. Goodbye.